you don't have to teach it like we are a racist country we are not a racist country but more like hey like we have these really important tensions about our founding let's expose them let's let's discuss them because this is trying to prove a point without really bringing in any sort of counter voice when you have to eliminate your central thesis as soon as you've been brought to scrutiny that's a huge problem Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Robbie Gupta. I'm Corey Bradford. And I'm Ricky Schlott. Well, Corey, what do we have today? On today's show, someday, the current culture wars over the 1619 Project will be in the history books. But how does it change how we look at history today? We'll discuss the hotly contested project and why it's at the center of American political discourse. We got brand new inflation numbers in just a few hours ago. And guess what? Those numbers are higher than Snoop Dogg on the top floor of One World Trade. We'll take a look at the books. And finally, the will they, won't they couple of the moment, Elon Musk and Twitter, why they're taking a break just when it seemed like they were ready to get serious. But first things first, two defendants flipping pretrial, at least a dozen FBI informants, including one affectionately referred to as Big Dan, all a part of a sweeping plot to kidnap the Democratic governor of Michigan, Gretchen Whitmer. Even with all that on their side, Prosecutors still failed to get a single conviction, which is extremely rare in a federal case. Federal cases usually have a successful conviction rate greater than 90 percent. So what went wrong here? Well, defense attorneys for the four men who eventually stood trial convinced the jury that this was more of a case of entrapment than conspiracy. Here's one of the defense attorneys making that case again after winning an acquittal for his client. Our governor was never in any danger. And uh, I think the jury, even though they didn't get all of it, uh, you know, they smelled enough of it. I think what the FBI did is unconscionable, is what I think. And I think the jury just sent them a message loud and clear that these tactics are not going to be, you know, we're not going to condone what they've done. That argument that the alleged plotters were the real victims here won over the jury. Two men, Daniel Harris and Brandon Caserta, whose lawyers we just heard from, were acquitted. The jury deadlocked on the two alleged masterminds of this plot, Adam Fox and Barry Croft, who will likely get another trial. But the news out of the courtroom came as a surprise to a lot of people who first heard the alarming details of this case nearly two years ago. So it seems like that's the right place to start. Ravi, how did this case fall apart for the prosecutors here? Was it just not a strong case to begin with? Well, I'm going to quote Kevin Williamson from the National Review. This is, mind you, this is a, a conservative publication, and, and he sums up roughly where I am on this, and, and this is what he said. He said, the acquittal of two of the four suspects in the Whitmer kidnapping plot case is one of those events that lends itself to unfortunate overinterpretation. The acquittal does not mean that the men did not do anything wrong, or even that they did not do what they're accused of. Still less does it mean that the entire episode was, as some sympathizers say, a case of government entrapment, nor does this mean, as some other critics charge, that the government is soft on right-wing violence or on political violence perpetrated by white people. All this means is that the prosecution failed to prove its case to the satisfaction of the jury. That's it. And that happens pretty often. And so I, I come down roughly in the same place. And I think of it when you think of people are viewing this as a failure which in the narrow sense, it's a failure for the prosecutors. But when you think about the goals of law enforcement generally in this case, they had two goals that were actually intention. One was to ensure the safety of the governor, and the other was to build a case that they can prosecute. And I think a lot of the debate after this case was about whether they moved in too fast to arrest these guys. There are many debates, but one of the big ones is whether they moved in too fast to arrest these guys before a date 
for the kidnapping and some of the details were filled in. And that seems to be one relevant act that they took or decision that they made that made it really hard for them to prove this case. There are other issues here. I would say there are four problems here. One is the use of informants. There were at least a dozen informants involved here. And when you think about that, the sort of ratio of informants to the amount of people charged, at least federally, there's there's state cases as well. When you have at least a dozen informants and you have a, a case of six defendants, but two of them pled, two are acquitted, and then two in the hung jury, that's like a that's a ratio that starts to raise some eyebrows. You also have this question that Williamson alluded to about entrapment, right? Which is when you have all these informants. You have to be careful that those informants aren't leading on the uh, defendants in the in this case. Like they're not encouraging them to take these violent acts, but they're simply a a witness to it. And in this case, I think that the the defense had enough to work with to at least implant reasonable doubt. I would say the third question here is what's live action role playing, LARPing, which is what the defense was really, they were trying to tell that story that this is a bunch of guys who are fantasizing about doing something. How do you show that something is merely, you know, people fantasizing versus them wanting to carry it out? Well, you have to get them closer and closer to the point where they're actually carrying out that activity. But when that activity is the murder or kidnapping of the governor of the state of Michigan, you got to be really careful at how close you let people go to that line. And the fourth is obviously how specific people do have people have to be in their plot before it becomes a crime. And I think all those things came together to at least convince this jury that there was reasonable doubt. Yeah, and this also brings up a second question, which is how early should the FBI be getting involved in cases like this? Because if it takes six months to even get these guys on a, a not yet even really formed or planned date of execution, and for six months they had Big Dan, an informant inside, who was not only involved in planning but also encouraging the attack for that much time, I think that there is a case to be made that these guys were entrapped, and that is an ongoing issue that um, kind of damages FBI credibility because it happens on with people on the right wing sometimes, but also with oftentimes historically Muslim Americans that get entrapped into plots that the FBI has pulled them along into. And so I think that's a really unfair tactic sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's to your point, Ricky, this is what the FBI does. This is just a part of the type of investigations they do. They put people undercover. And sometimes those people, when they're undercover, they get too wrapped up in what the processes of what they're doing and they become a part of the crime that they're trying to carry out. But I, I just want to point out here that the reality is these men still were would-be domestic terrorists. They wanted to commit violence in the name of their extremist beliefs. The question is, how much did these informants like Big Dan and everything, how much did they directly influence the actual plot to kidnap the governor, whether or not that was their organic idea? Yeah, I don't want that fact to be lost. These are terrible human beings, in my opinion. They're uh, allegedly members of these two groups that are affiliated, the, the Boogaloo movement, if I'm saying this correctly, which they believe uh, in a, in propagating a second American civil war, which is what they call the Boogaloo. And there's this subgroup called the Wolverine Watchmen, uh, which is the group that they belong to. This is a subgroup of the Boogaloo movement. And this all came to the attention of the FBI because local police uh, referred this to the FBI because this militia was getting local cops' addresses. And that's when an informant comes into the picture shor shortly after that, saying that they wanted to murder Local police is what Big Dan also said, that they wanted to m murder police officers. And then if you follow this timeline from March 2020 forward in the months that ensued, they're doing 
field training exercises. They're attempting to construct IEDs. They're discussing with each other, attacking the Michigan State Police. They're saying to each other things like, quote, I want to hurt people. I want to burn houses down and blow things up. I might murder a cop. Um, they're starting to use euphemisms like we're going to party it out and make a cake and send it, which the FBI believes was them talking about making a bomb. Uh, and so we can go on, right? But these are not the kinds of things that, you know, people in polite society do. I think that, you know, one can debate whether they're LARPing so-called or not, but clearly these are not the kind of people any of us would want to hang out with. And if you're a local law enforcement, there is good reason to be paying attention to this. I think anybody who says that this is the FBI getting involved in, in the wrong issue, to me, I, I, I don't know what the FBI would be getting involved with if it's not people make, you know, making IDs, detonating them, talking about murdering cops. This seems like exactly what they should have done. They could have executed it better but they should be super concerned about this. Mm, but surveillance is also different from actually getting informants on the ground. And in this case, I think it's almost FBI misconduct to have them egging it on. But at the same time within the, of course these are not defensible individuals and I'm not making that case, but within the actual case of attempting to kidnap her, I, I, it makes sense that a jury would acquit these men because there was no attack that ever took place. There was no official set date. And when they in, they individually uh, interviewed each of them, the plots weren't even the same. They were very grandiose and very different. And, you know, I mean, this is obviously horrible, but at the same time, in terms of actually getting them on charges in this instance, I, I think that the FBI kind of endangered that potential in court. Yeah, but I think like people are assuming that the FBI created these informants. These informants came to the FBI, at least yeah. from what I understand. And I think part of what is in dispute, at least from my reading out of it, is whether they encouraged or not. And I think like part of what Williamson is saying is they didn't prove entrapment, right? Like I think what you're suggesting is that there was entrapment. I think what Williamson is saying is that it's not necessarily true that they proved that the FBI entrapped or that Big Dan actually did plan key elements of this, but there was a reasonable doubt as to yeah, whether exactly. he did or not. So okay. I want to be at least a little fair yeah. to the FBI They on couldn't, this. Uh, to clarify, they couldn't prove that this would have happened had Big Dan not been involved in his yes. informant role. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So in that case, I think it's a little murky and I, and I think there's, there's stuff that the jury didn't know, which is that some of the FBI agents involved in this had some ethical breaches uh, in the aftermath of this. And in the clip that we showed earlier, when when the defense attorney is saying that, I think he said something like they could kind of smell it. And what he was referring to really was like the, the climate of discussion around these FBI agents, because even though some of this impropriety of the FBI agents, which was in, unrelated to the case, uh, was being raised in court, the jury would have to leave and then they would, I guess, litigate the issue of relevance. And a lot of these these facts did not make it to the jury. But I think the defense attorney, attorney is saying well, the jury could kind of pick up that something was going on around the impropriety of these FBI agents. That's at least what he was suggesting. Yeah, it sounds like uh, these guys had some really good lawyers and the government just didn't prepare their case as well as they should have. But we do have to take any type of threat of domestic terrorism serious. And I hope that this particular incident doesn't make us less aware of that threat and make us take it less serious. Uh, but the FBI does have a very questionable history when it comes to these things. Speaking of history, the story of a country's founding is absolutely fundamental to that nation's identity. So the 1619 Project, recasting the origin story of America and refocusing that origin on the institution of slavery was always going to be controversial. But some of the specific battles here, especially those over the project's most sweeping claims, have been a complete mess. 
at times pitting author Nicole Hannah-Jones directly against former President Donald Trump and a politically resonant message of uncomplicated American greatness. The rest of us are caught in the middle, including our students. Now, there's a lot to go through here, but I want to start with you, Ravi, on this bizarre back and forth over what the 1619 Project actually claims about our nation's founding. Walk us through that. Yeah, we decided to take this on today because this is, issue is not going away. And this is a wrinkle in this larger conversation we've been having about curriculum standards, uh, about race in America, and what it is that we teach in our schools, and even just the stories we tell about ourselves. And one thing happened recently, which is a couple days ago, Nicole Hannah-Jones, who's the author of The 1619 Project, appeared on Chris Wallace's show. And I think this really tees up to us her vision for this project. So let's watch this clip. What's your response when people say that it's you're you're saying the country's racist and that this is a central part and making us feel making them the kids feel bad about it are you saying parents are wrong yes uh i think that i don't know how one can argue we were not founded as a racist country uh i believe that we were i believe that the record is clear uh, nicole hannah jones believes explicitly as she described that that we were founded as a racist country I think that she she says much more than that. Uh, I think she says in the in the original 1619 uh, essays and in the book that she released that that in many ways we continue to be a racist country and I think that has what has started a, a debate around this project. But before we even get to the substance of it, uh, let me just describe a little bit about the, the the purpose of it. And so when they started this project, she and she says this in her book quite eloquently. She says, uh, black people were largely absent from the histories I read. We only appeared were unavoidable. Slavery was mentioned briefly in the chapter on the nation's most deadly war. And then black people disappeared again for a full century until magically appearing as Martin Luther King Jr. gave a speech about a dream. Now, I can't speak for our audience, but I could say that that largely resonates with the way I remember history being taught where I where I come from, meaning like the certain key parts of history, especially the Reconstruction, which Eric Foner and other historians have pointed out, has been so misunderstood in our society. And you could ask any poll about, from Americans about what they know about lynchings, about poll taxes, about everything that happened to um, ensure that freedom wasn't granted after the Civil War. Most Americans don't know about that, and that is largely a result of the way things are being taught in our schools. So I would start by saying I sympathize with the goal of this project. I went to school in Alabama, which was one of the center areas when it came to the American Civil War. And um, I disagree a little bit with her claim that slavery and African-Americans were just an afterthought in lessons of the Civil War. We learned extensively about uh, the slavery's role in the Civil War. And I also disagree with the notion that African-Americans disappeared from history and then reappeared during the civil rights movement. That may be the case for a lot of uh, people who, you know, studied this stuff in school. But I, I had English teachers teach me about the Harlem Renaissance, which took place in between those two periods. I had history teachers teach me about the Reconstruction era. I think it really does depend on the region you're learning these things in and the quality of your education. But I do I do I do see what she's getting. There at. was a dig at Staten Island schools right there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, maybe. Uh, but I do. T I totally see what she's getting at. Largely, a lot of, of what of African-Americans, their contribution and slavery as an institution has been ignored in the foundation of this country.
Mm. And as the youngest podcast member here, um, I I definitely did not have the experience that she describes, although I don't find it hard to believe that some people have for sure. Um, I went to a pretty progressive school in New Jersey and I was taught, I think, what in retrospect seems like a fair and balanced um, sort of idea somewhere between the 1776 project and the 1619 project narratives. Um, but I think, you know, what this, what this comes down to is, do we look at this as an intellectual project in the New York Times for adults? And then it becomes different when there's a curriculum developed, which there was. And I think that there's a lot of complicated questions swirling around. And then you also have the fact that this, this project has a several year history already. And the stated intent has clearly moved and i think there's been let's some do, gaslighting yeah, so let's get into that all right so 1619 uh was the year that a dutch man of war named the white lion dropped anchor in jamestown virginia and that is when as as nicole hannah jones describes this is our the founding point of our, our country's sordid history with slavery and she originally described the 1619 project as an effort quote this from the original essays and and the reason why i say the original essays is because this as you allude to ricky this framing has changed over time but this is what she says the goal of the project was to displace the mythology of 1776 and to reframe the country's history understanding 1619 as our true founding now this was in the original essay basically saying that 1619 is our true founding and then the new york times deleted that passage as they're up for a Pulitzer, and then- Without and a public notice of without any sort, public too, notice, very quietly deleted it. Which I find, I just don't understand, like, because there, I actually think it's an interesting debate. Like, when is the founding of a country? Why does it have to be 1776? Why can't it be 1619? I don't know why they were so defensive about this fact, but we can get back to that. I think you own it. Like, to me, like, you should just own, like, the project. Like, well, is it's it inaccurate. Well, it's, an inaccurate statement. Well, at least it's a debate, right? You're yeah. calling it the 1619 Project well, now. Well, and also, at the very least, in terms of journalistic ethics. Like, one time I, I cited in one sentence, I, I accidentally called the lawyer in a case Daniel instead of David, and Reason Magazine issued, like, a whole correction banner right. at the bottom. And that's a really minor detail relative versus this is a major detail, and that's journalistic ethics at right. the most foundational level and nicole hannah jones is a journalist so yeah well and, and it gets biz more bizarre from there then she then in a tweet says uh, in responding to critics about this says the 1619 project does not argue that 1619 is our true founding we know this nation marks its founding at 1776 she made a similar statement in cnn that was 2020 mm -hmm. so mind you this is after they had said the exact opposite in the essay then there was one period of time uh, in which she was clapping back at people saying the exact opposite. One year earlier, she wrote on Twitter, I argue that 1619 is our true founding. Also, look at the banner pick in my profile. And the banner pick is the is July 4th, 1776, crossed out, August 20th, 1619, included. And then now back in the book, they've, they've reinserted this claim. So basically, she's gone back and forth as to whether this was the true aim of the project. And I mentioned this up top because even people like me who are sympathetic at a, uh, of a lot of the things she's trying to do, from the outset, if the very goal of the project is something that you aren't willing to be completely forthright about, it makes it really hard to defend anything else in here. And there are things in here that I think are worth defending. There are some things are, that I think are wrong, yeah. but there are things in here that are worth defending. But... But if you can't be upfront about the very goals of this project, how are we supposed to trust you? Yeah, well, 
I'm a history buff, as some of you may know, and I don't. I'm not a historian though. I don't have a degree in history, uh, but I've but I've read a lot of books. I've studied this stuff a lot. But the Hannah Jones isn't a historian either. She's a journalist who is compiling a lot of these historical events into this project. If the 1619 project was all about framing this narrative about slavery and its importance in the foundation. Uh, of this country that would be one thing but then like you said to jump from that and make the claim that not only was it important to the foundation of this nation but it was literally the start of slavery in this nation is also the start of this nation like that they're one and the same that's a really bold claim another really bold claim she makes here because i think that one of the reasons why she makes this next claim i'm going to talk about is because it almost grounds this idea that america was started by slavery was this very bold claim she makes and that's the idea that protecting the institution of slavery was a major primary factor in sparking the American Revolution and the subsequent Revolutionary War. Some of the evidence that she gives for that is the project cites that when the American Revolution was starting in the mid 1770s, she cites that Virginia's royal governor, John Murray, the Earl of Dunmore, in an effort to suppress the rebellion that the colonists were starting, warned that if colonists took up arms, he would declare the freedom of slaves and reduce the city of Williamsburg to ashes. So and then after that, enslaved people uh, by the hundreds liberated themselves and ran to British troops. It is very true that a lot of people who were enslaved fought for the British during the American Revolution. However, she loses sight of the fact that there were several black soldiers who also fought on the side of the patriots in a bid to gain their freedom. According to the book, The Colored Patriots of the American Revolution, George Washington authorized slaves to be freed who fought for the American Continental Army. Rhode Island started enlisting slaves in 1778, and they actually promised compensation to owners whose slaves were enlisted and survived to gain their freedom. Now, none of this is, I don't say any of this to try to take away from the very horrific, real, uh, from the very hor horrific, realities of slavery that Nicole Hannah-Jones talks about. But excluding this information is is very troubling to me from just a, a person who wants to know like the real facts about history. Well, yeah, I think it, where it comes down is like she could be more nuanced in so many things. There are certain things she says that are just straight up false, but then there are other things where she provides one part of the reality without giving enough caveats to it. I am sympathetic to her larger claim that slavery was a factor in the revolution, and I'll give you a few, and, and I don't mean the factor, which I know we'll come back to is, is where she got herself in trouble, but let's come back to our friend, the Earl of Dunmore, right? So he issues this proclamation, slaves uh, in, in the US are, are joining his forces, right? Important to note that even though there, there were uh, slaves who joined the colonial forces, the numbers were way higher on the British side. Yeah. And I find this such an interesting part of American history, and this is what gets at like why there's actually something important in this is that I actually think this is the kind of thing that people should be discussing in schools because there were people at the time and and very credible historians today who think this was a really big deal. And so here's Edward Rutledge, who's a, uh, a member of the South Carolina delegation of the Continental Congress. He said Dunmore's declaration did, quote, more effectually work on uh, an eternal separation between Great Britain and the colonies than any other expedient which could possibly have been thought of. That is a member of the Continental Congress from South Carolina saying this was the most important factor. And this is Jill Lepore, who's a professor at, uh, of history at Harvard and a New Yorker writer who wrote one of my favorite histor uh, historical books called These Truths. She wrote, not the taxes, not the tea, 
not the shots on Lexington and Concord, not the siege of Boston. It was this act, Dunmore's offer of freedom to slaves, that tipped the scales in favor of American independence. This wasn't a side note of history. Harry Washington, one of uh, George Washington's own slaves, joined Dunmore's forces, as did one of Patrick Henry's. Give me, you know, the give me liberty, give me death. One of his slaves is joining those forces. And so I think this is really important. This is important history. It doesn't mean it is the cause. I don't even know if I agree with Lepore that it was the most important cause, but clearly it was an important factor. And that's why I think it's an important discussion here. I think no matter what issue that she brings up that you choose to parse out here, the the truth is you can find a professor with a fancy institution behind them on either side of the argument. And that's because these are very bold, large, multifaceted issues that she's taking on and really spinning a a kind of like blinders on narrative about bringing a causal thread or a genealogical thread between one cause and one result when in reality i think slavery of course is is infiltrating every aspect of of pre-civil war america and to a profound degree and that's something that's worth looking at in a in a considerable way in schools in a project like the 1619 project but to make it the only causal thread will just eliminate nuance without I mean, it's just it's unavoidable based on the the outset of this project. And I think that the fact that there are experts on either side of every issue proves that point. And because this is trying to prove a point without really bringing in any sort of counter voice, I think that's where it loses touch. And in her defense, she did eliminate that reference that that, that it is the cause and she does explain in her book but like, that's like eliminating the central thesis that's what that's the problem is like when you when you have to eliminate your central thesis as soon as you've been brought to scrutiny that's a huge problem no i agree and with also that. Yeah. uh Corey, i know you looked into a fact checker that she herself appointed who said that she wasn't being listened to right the uh, professor from Northwestern University, Leslie M. Harris, she was one of the fact checkers for the 1619 Project. And in an article for Politico, Harris, she basically strongly argued against the notion that the preservation of slavery was the primary reason for the American Revolution. And she even says, and I'll quote her here, despite my advice, the Times published the incorrect statement about the American Revolution anyway in Hannah Jones's introductory essay. In addition, the paper's characterizations of slavery in early America reflected laws and practices more common in the antebellum era than in colonial times and did not accurately illustrate the varied experiences of the first generation of enslaved people that arrived in Virginia in 1619. She goes on to say, I was concerned that critics would use the overstated claim to discredit the entire undertaking. So far, that's exactly what happened. Yeah. yeah. And, and that seems to be the biggest thing is when you have just a few historical inaccuracies, people are going to use that to say the whole thing is BS. Yeah, right. And, and, I, and I think, I, oh, sorry, I think what you're going to probably say is it's probably more than a few historical inaccuracies. And I think I would agree with that. And I think part of what my frustration is, and I know we'll come back to this, is I really think there's some really important stuff that I think, depending on where you are, it sounds like we've all had different experiences in schools, that there are certain things that are really important conversations about our founding that you can teach and you could teach it as the tension, right? You don't have to teach it like, we are a racist country. We are not a racist country, but more like, hey, like we have these, these really important tensions about our founding. Let's, let's expose them. Let's, let's discuss them. Let's allow a student to say we're a racist country. Let's allow another student to say we're not. Let's debate it out, discuss it kind of like we're having a discussion here. That's what I'm worried about is that this project kind of sets this whole conversation back because of the criticisms and her her the way she handled them. Yeah, and I have to say as somebody who hasn't delved into the project before this in any uh, substantive way besides kind of just rehashings of it, I and also somebody who has 
big problems with Nicole Hannah-Jones and other aspects of things that she said. I had biases coming in of just expecting to not like any aspect of it or to disagree with everything about it fundamentally. And that's not the case. I think there are a lot of things in here that are important, that are that are valid, that need to be brought up, that I have no problem having discussions about in schools. I think that's completely appropriate. But then some of the um, some misconduct on her part, in my opinion, is related to a another essay within the book that her main essay is what's gotten the most attention. But there is an essay by Matthew Desmond of Princeton about capitalism in which he essentially claims that slavery is the ancestor of modern capitalism in America, that there is a genealogical causal thread that can be linked pretty much directly from slavery to the economy we have today. Um, and he says we live in a peculiarly brutal economy under uniquely severe and unbridled capitalism that um, cotton was the largest export of our country at that time. And so our economy was built around around cotton, around slavery, around the plantation economy. Um, and he says that management techniques today are the result of plantation management techniques, that union busting, poverty wages, and gig jobs can be directly connected, that um, filling in rows on an Excel spreadsheet is repeating the business procedures of slave labor camps, and so making pretty bold claims about cause and effect without any real external input throughout. And there have been some major problems that came out of that essay. Um, he incorrectly inflated the numbers on how central cotton is to the economy pretty dramatically. He made the case that the South had a huge concentration of banks compared to the North, and so therefore capital also was condensed where cotton was. And it turns out that New York had more banks than the entire Confederacy, which is completely the opposite of what he's saying. Um, he used just one plantation owner's management techniques to make an analogy for all of them, and that turned out to be pretty widely disputed by historians. Um, and yeah, like an example, just to give a color to what you're describing yeah. is, like what he'll do is he'll say, hey, here's an example of a plantation owner using like double entry bookkeeping, therefore mm -hmm. double entry bookkeeping is a, 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 a reflection of slavery. Yeah, and that goes Forgetting back to, mention, to the Middle like Ages. Florence or something, yeah. right? And, like and also was used ago. in the Soviet Union, which kind of explodes right. the whole argument that it's a uniquely capitalist system right. as well. Um, but just, you know, there, there are a lot of corrections that have been made, but one specific example of how this was just mistreated is he... He quoted a Kathleen Rosen or Caitlin Rosenthal book where she said she couldn't find a simple path between Excel spreadsheets and slavery. And that is expressly what she said. She didn't want people to use her <laughs> book as the causal thread. And it looks like he pretty much read exactly the opposite. And so Philip Magnus, who wrote an article recently for Reason, contacted the editor in chief of New York Times Magazine to say this. And at first he chose not to make a correction. Then he said it was an interpretive difference, even though it was precisely the opposite of what she said. And he was using this as proof of his thesis. And then it disappeared in the book without explanation. And so this is an ongoing issue. It's not like she just addressed, which she did address some criticism, but it's not like she said, okay, here are all the things that I addressed and here are all the issues and here's how we've corrected them. There are still quiet deletions taking place. Yeah. What I worry about is the response to the 1619 project. Uh, for example, isn't there something like a, there's a 1776 project and it seems like the goals of that project are almost even more troubling than the goals of, of 1619. Yeah, and to be clear, this is not a whataboutism. I think like, to let me close the book on her for a second and say that I think that the, the mistakes here are egregious. I think her her 
her scholarship is shoddy enough that we should not be teaching this thing in schools. And she as a journalist, I think should, and the New York Times as a whole should be getting way more scrutiny than they're getting on this. And I, and I think there are many types of people critiquing this. There are well-intentioned people critiquing this, and then there are ill-intentioned people critiquing this. And I think a lot of my friends on the left are only focused on the ill-intentioned people. And they're not thinking through, hey, like there are legitimate critiques of this, both on the scholarship, but also a like the larger point being made outside of the particulars, right? Like there's a really important debate, Corey, as you pointed out, that like she shouldn't be left off the hook for that. You know, somebody who should not also be left off the hook is our former president, Donald Trump, who's pushed the 1776 curriculum as a response to 1619. And this is notable because there's Nicole Hannah-Jones and then there's the former president of the United States who may be our future president of the United States who's putting the might of the United States government behind a new curriculum. And we're seeing evidence that it's actually being implemented. Uh, the governor of Tennessee announced this week that he's going to be incentivizing a network that helped create the 1776 curriculum to open up to 40 schools in Tennessee to have, quote, anti-woke curriculum. And, as, and I looked at this anti-woke curriculum. And so I was a middle school principal, bingo card. And I just was like, hey, look, let me see how they're going to teach this issue. And this is directly from their curriculum. Uh, this is their uh, Unit 4 Lesson 1 middle school curriculum. The objective, quote, students learn about the ways in which the founding was a momentous change in favor of equality and freedom in the history of the world and set the status of slavery on a path to distinction. That's the objective. Hmm. Keys to the lesson. So remember, this is for teachers. This is basically saying this is how you're going to teach this lesson. The most common charge leveled against the founders and hence against our country itself is that they were hypocrites who didn't believe in their stated principles and therefore the country they built rests on a lie. This charge is untrue and has done enormous damage, especially in recent years, with a devastating effect on our civic unity and social fabric. Now, that seems like advocacy, not history. Now, yeah. one could agree with this statement, but I don't think that is the only truth that should be taught to children. And if you read this curriculum from elementary school all the way up through high school, it is advocacy and they're putting it in the middle of curriculum. And I think like it sh a student should be able to make the point and a teacher should obviously cover the fact that George Washington had 120 slaves. Thomas Jefferson enslaved his own child. I talked already about how some of these people were fleeing at the time. Like, obviously, it was a huge contradiction. The Constitution uh, contains multiple clauses that were um, about slavery, including the three-fifths clause. Like, so, like, this is obviously a huge contradiction at the founding of our country. Now, you don't have to say we're a racist country because of it, but it should be central to our history. Yeah, I think the central question here is how we look at history, how we choose to look at history. And I'm unilaterally opposed to banning the 1619 Project in higher education. And I think that there's more of a debate to be had on K-12 to levels. And I'm definitely suspicious of manufactured patriotism. But in the end, the question is, is American history the story of an ideal that is that we're still on the progress to get there? Or is it the story of original sin? And I think that's really what it boils down to. And clearly that this project has hit a nerve. Yeah, and to be clear on my position, I, I support like I was an Obama person, and that was basically his point. It's mm -hmm. like he was always about the the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. That's where I sit. But part of what I'm with you and reason I think put this really well is we shouldn't force kids to read 1619, but we shouldn't also ban them from reading it either if they wanted to. I mean, ultimately, I agree with the 1619's project. Like, I agree with the goal to make sure that slavery doesn't get lost in the mix as a major component in the founding of this nation. However, 
the historical inaccuracies, the illogical leaps that she makes to connect certain things, that really just clouds any true goals that this project has. And if the goal here is to, I mean, I'm not sure if her goal here is to guilt white kids into caring about slavery more. I don't know if her goal is to get the government to give us all uh, reparations. I'm not really sure. She but, has prescribed reparations as a solution, yeah. But I feel like if one wants to teach, especially young black children, about why certain things in their neighborhoods are the way they are, then personally, I think we need a 1968 project because deindustrialization, the, import the importation of guns and drugs into their neighborhoods and the fragmentation of the black family has had a much more negative effect on current African-Americans than slavery, in my personal opinion. But I'm sure there will be people who will push back on that. Uh, let's move on to inflation. Inflation numbers for the U.S. are still inflating. The U.S. CPI has now shot up by 8.5%. And that's the highest in 40 years. Prices are still rising and may not have peaked yet, while Americans are still feeling it at the checkout line. Now, there's a lot of reasons why this is happening. Government spending, supply chain issues, the war in Ukraine. And we'll talk about what's behind this. But whatever got us here, the Fed is tasked with getting us out. They're raising interest rates to try and combat this, while economists debate whether a more aggressive monetary policy will trigger a recession. The numbers are against them. According to Politico, eight out of the last nine times the Fed started raising rates, we got a recession. Fed Chair Jerome Powell is trying to ease concerns, assuring the public that they can pull off what is called a soft landing, lowering inflation without shrinking the economy. Here's economist Mohamed El Arian talking about that narrow pathway on CNBC. And that's why every time I've been with you for the last year, I've kept on saying, be careful, the Fed is falling behind the curve. The Fed should start now easing its foot off the accelerator so it doesn't have to slam on the brakes later on. You've heard me like a broken record. And now we are at a place where you're absolutely right. There's a very, very narrow pathway for orderly disinflation. The Fed has to be very lucky to be able to strike that pathway. Now, it's also possible that threading the needle isn't necessarily what we need. The last time we saw inflation like this was in the early 80s. And back then, a recession was just what the doctor ordered. So what do we think, guys? Should we expect a recession or should we even welcome one? Well, I think I have to put aside my like abolish the Fed anarcho-capitalist streak here um, for this conversation. But I obviously inflation needs to be addressed. It's at a four decade high. It's up 1.2% just from February's numbers, which is incredible. And I think a big result of that is because the Fed did in lower the interest rate during the pandemic to stimulate the economy. A lot of people took out new loans, bought houses, took advantage of that time period. But that's also artificial. And so now we have this enormous bubble where the entire time during the pandemic, it was kind of just confusing to watch the stock market explode while people were actually hurting on the ground. And I think this is kind of inevitable. And now the Fed is going to attempt to raise interest rates without causing a recession, which I think it will inevitably cause a recession, in my opinion, because it'll make paying off your credit card more difficult. It'll make getting a mortgage more difficult. People's stimulus checks are drying up and their savings are drying up. And so I think that everyone's going to kind of pull back from the economy as a result of this. And I will not be surprised if there's a recession. And I also think, you know, maybe we need to have a recession. And it's unfortunate that in our system, we have the federal bank that's there to push it up and pull it down and kind of cause it. But I think that they're probably causing an inevitability. I think people might be confused because I think like I at least when I look at this, I'm like, well, what what is exactly the Fed 
Fed's role here, to your point, and, and like why is it that they have a role in controlling inflation? So basically, they set this thing called the federal funds rate, which uh, affects the rate at which banks loan money to each other. And what winds up happening is if you raise the rates, that means that the cost of borrowing for banks is higher, which means that the cost to you becomes higher because they want to passing that on to you. So like a good example is like if you want to go buy a car and you want to loan to buy your car, it trickles down this this increase in the uh, the the federal funds rate so that you it'll be more expensive uh, for you to get that car and you may not decide to get that car. And if you decide not to get that car, then the car manufacturers may build fewer factories and it affects the entire economy. So they're trying to cool down the economy and say, all right, let's incentivize less spending. Uh, and if we incentivize less spending, maybe prices will drop. And this is tricky. It's a tricky dance. It's a tricky dance because like you said, it will probably trigger a recession. Right. And I think this is why people, I have a lot of friends who say, well, the, the deficit and the debt doesn't matter. They'll say, because we could just print money. I hear this. This is actually full books and serious economists who make this argument. And our, our deficit is in record levels. And I think People need to understand that when you print money and you just inject more money into the system in many different ways, print money is kind of a euphemism for a bunch of different things the government does, that the cost of everything goes up. And that is a huge, that means that people's savings, their pensions, and other things are less valuable. It also means that the people who borrow money from us or that we're borrowing money from, they start to lose faith in us. Because if I borrow $100 from you, Corey, and then $100 is worth way, way less in the future because the things I'm doing, I have a huge incentive to make that $100 worth as little as possible. And you're going to get frustrated at a certain point and say, you know what, I'm going to stop lending you money because it doesn't, it's not worth anything in the future. So I think this is a real problem for us. Yeah. And I think it's easy historically to just sort of ignore these enormous packages that are being passed because we're used to government spending that with just numbers that we can't even comprehend. But to put a figure on how much money has literally been printed and put into our economy. Um, since the pandemic, we've increased the supply of money by 40%, which is just unprecedented. That's staggering. And that happened at the same time that we have a supply chain issue. And the root cause of inflation is just too much money chasing too few goods. So we have less and goods. And services. Yes. But we have less physical goods and, and groceries and things that people need day to day and more money than ever before at a, just an unprecedented sudden rate. And this was just the inevitable consequence of that. Yeah. And I think just to, to put some numbers behind that, I think a lot of people and I, I was searching for this fact, well, how much does the supply chain matter versus other things? Uh, apparently, durable goods account for only 13 percent of CPI, which is basically the inflation number minus energy and food, I believe. And by comparison, services excluding energy account for 57% of the CPI. So that, you know, services are a big part of this. So even if the supply chain gets solved, everything spends. Like going to your, your, your yoga class or, you know, hiring somebody to fix something in your house. These things are increasing regardless of the supply chain. And so this is a real spiral. Well, the sad thing about it is like the Fed has to do something. And the question is, because if the Fed does nothing, then inflation is going to stay at the rate it is. It'll probably continue to increase and all these prices will go up and everybody will keep complaining. Uh, but now if the Fed does what it's doing, like Ricky said earlier, it'll become harder to take out you know, a loan. It'll be harder to pay off credit cards. But essentially that's, again, that's what we need. We got to have that. And it's like, for people who complain about the Fed raising interest rates or complain about the possibilities of an upcoming recession, it's like, well, 
what else do you want? Like this, there has to be a tough decisions made here to fix the economy. Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm like I, I have a problem with the Fed raising rates, and I also, I, in some ways, like a recession. If it's inevitable, it's got to be the pain that we have to accept. But I do think we should step back and say, like, are we the equivalent of you know, people who take uppers and then take downers, and then you're, you're just kind of yeah. like we're we're injecting all this money into the system, and then we're using the 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 federal funds rate and tinkering with that to try to deal with the consequences of our own previous choices, and we're just constantly calibrating these two drugs that we're addicted to and just say, all right, can we, when we get out of this thing, can we step back and just do less of both? Less economic speedballing is yeah. basically what you're calling for. <laughs> um, yeah. When is the housing market going to crash? Because I just want to be able to buy a house. So maybe this inflation will crash the housing market. So me and all my millennial friends will finally be able to purchase a home. It's always hard to watch when two people who are clearly meant for each other just can't get the timing right. Elon Musk is giving Twitter some space. As the odd yet extremely influential billionaire says, he won't be joining the company's board after all. This after he spent billions to become Twitter's largest shareholder with a 9.2% stake in the company. Twitter CEO broke the news Sunday that Musk wasn't on board with the board, but no word yet on why he backed out. So I want to start by asking, is Musk a good thing for Twitter? I mean, is he the type of guy we need to lead this platform forward into the future? Well, I think like Twitter has, and Scott Galloway uh, from Pivot has been really good on this. Twitter has not innovated uh, in any way commensurate with its standing in society. Like if you think about Twitter, it hasn't changed that much. No. And there've been some recent changes since Jack Dorsey has left the helm as the CEO, but it, it is largely a static tool. And Galloway was part of a earlier group of people who tried to lead a shareholder revolt to change the leadership when, when Dorsey was running it and try to make changes and make them innovate more. And his, his accusation was that Dorsey was running Twitter while he's also running Square. And yeah. then all, and because Square was just much more profitable product, most of Dorsey's energy was going into Square and all the innovation was going to Square, which is yeah. a super innovative company. And Twitter stayed the same. And so, you know, there's there's two ways to interpret this, ter interpret Twitter right now. Is it a meme stock? Is it because, you know, Musk is involved in it? It goes up because of, you know, the way GameStop did just because like they're just legions of followers or are people thinking, hey, this the pressure that Musk puts on this company could lead it to be a better product. I actually am not sure where I come out on this, but I think like given how stagnant Twitter was, if I were a Twitter shareholder, I would be kind of okay with some of the turbulence because the status quo wasn't working. Yep. And I think Twitter's become more and more of a public forum in our society. And I don't think that there's anything wrong with having someone more free speech oriented on the board. He's not taking over entire control and fortunately he won't be there. But I do think that although it's hard to paint the richest man in the world is an outsider in any way. In this sense, he is an ideological outsider who is representative of a lot of users of Twitter and a lot of people who feel like their voice can't be shared there. And so I think that's a healthy thing to infuse some some diversity and some different perspectives onto the board. And I'm disappointed to see that he won't become part of one. But I also don't know that he necessarily was going to be the, the saving grace and restore it to some bastion of free speech. And of course, you need some guardrails somewhere. And so, I, I mean, obviously, he's still a minority holder and that was not going going to just all magically fix itself. I have a clarifying question though. Like what is, and I, I mean this sincerely, what, what do people want to say on Twitter that they can't? Because when I'm on Twitter, people say too much. <laughs> like it's I, like to me, I it's like it's a nasty speech, form. I think the free speech argument is weird to me because it's like saying 
Twitter as a private company should be forced to carry speech that it doesn't agree with. That would be like saying Fox News should be forced to show an AOC speech every time she makes a speech. I don't understand why we expect private companies to be forced to carry messages that aren't in line with their mission and aren't in line with their goals. I mean, no one is being thrown in jail. You know, we did just cover the New York Post story being totally removed from Twitter. There are issues about free speech on Twitter. And I think that they're they're valid. They've obviously created major cultural change. That's a perfect example of it. And I think that having somebody who just has a different perspective on a board is always a good thing in a company. Right. I just disagree that it's a free speech issue because no one's going to jail. So constitutionally, it's not a free speech issue. It's just an issue. Well, it's of- a cultural. We have a we also have a culture of free speech. We have a First Amendment, but we also have a free speech culture. And as our culture becomes more and more online, it becomes more and more important to make sure that private companies are being responsible and upholding that because that's a value of our country. And of course, no one's going to force them or no one should. I know there are people on the right who want to. But I think that allowing the free market and allowing a, a voice on a board that is reflective of a portion of the free market is a healthy thing. Right. Perfect. Yeah, I, I don't think these things like neatly go right left, right? Like I think I would think of Musk as like a libertarian more than a conservative. And I, I think- mean, he's definitely a libertarian. He posted this tweet of him. This is this is right when he was still gonna be on the board. He posted this tweet <laughs> of him smoking weed, saying Twitter's next board meeting is gonna be lit. Yeah. I guess it's not going to be that late now. <laughs> yeah, my, but it's my, like, yeah, he's totally libertarian. My uh, read, and we've talked about this before. My read on him is he he doesn't want the government telling him how to run his factory. He doesn't want them telling him he needs to unionize. He doesn't I'm want them that. telling him what his COVID restrictions are going to be. You know, I think he he doesn't want the, the SEC telling him what he could say about his company. Well, no and, billionaire would want any of those things because it would lead to them having less billions. Yeah, and but I think like for me, I'm more sympathetic to Musk than a, than a lot of people, a lot of my friends, because I don't treat him like you know like the the Coke descendant or something. Like he's a person who innovated his way to build projects that I think are good for humanity. There is an interesting contradiction about how he received subsidies. I do think that's a really fascinating debate that I know even Reason has pointed out before. But I think like the reason why he was able to exploit this moment is because Twitter, very interestingly, doesn't have this dual class of shares that Google and Facebook has. So one of the, one thing to keep an eye out for is like, Google and Facebook founders have special shares that prevent somebody coming in and usurping their power. Like like Zuckerberg is not uh, in any way amenable to anything that Dorsey exposed himself here to because he, Zuckerberg has special shares that ensure he will always control that company as long as he wants to. Are we going to get Twitter blue? <laughs> is that is that going to be like the next step here? Three dollars and we're all verified. I what I'm most excited about is this idea he floated to to open up the Twitter headquarters to the homeless in San Francisco, which I think might have been tongue in cheek. But I if he's that serious, was very tongue in cheek. No, but if he's serious about that, I'm all for it. He also said he'd get rid of the W, so it would just be titter. Which is uh, I don't think he was. Yeah, I think that was yeah, a joke. Yeah, I don't think that was serious. If he was serious, he might have been serious. Though. I can never tell with Musk. I can never tell when he's being. It keeps serious you guessing, or when he's or when he's like a true emotional terrorist. Like, and I have many of them in my family. They just keep you guessing. Yes, yeah. yes, absolutely. Well, we'll have to keep guessing about what Musk's intentions are here. Let's have a few updates, or actually, just one update. Uh, into it, we have an update on Into it. Yeah, so a while ago, we talked about how screwed up our tax situation is. And since tax day is on Monday, I have my my resident libertarian complaint about the tax system. Um, the Federal Trade Commission filed a complaint against an Intuit because they were deceptively marketing their TurboTax service as a free service when, in fact, it wasn't at all. Um, but this is just 
your your yearly reminder that Intuit has spent more than $41 million lobbying to maintain this convoluted tax system that we have that we're all struggling through right now since 1998, that um, H&R Block has spent $38 million, and that the top beneficiary of Intuit has been Joe Biden through different donations with $146,000. Oh, yeah, Special interest Delaware stuff yeah. pumping right into that. And so as many wonderful ideas of, as have been floated about making our tax system less opaque, um, they've all been shut down by this major lobbying effort. And I think that this is just the perfect time to remind people of that. Are you going to be a conscientious objector to the tax code this year, like a Wesley Snipes, which is a <laughs> reference you probably won't get? I wish, yeah. but I, I don't think I'm going to make that move. Yeah. Although taxation is theft and I will Because the FBI has approached me. Say as much. Because I'm, I'm a source for them on this case. So, so you're like Big Dan. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm you're Big, big Dan, Dan for, the, big for Dan. the tax code. Big uh, Robbie. Big Robbie for the, for the tax code. <laughs> well, we want to thank you guys for watching us today. Make sure to subscribe to our YouTube page. And if you're listening to the podcast, make sure to rate, review, and subscribe. We will see you guys next time.